I really wanted that piece of carpet. I really wanted that because I hate that carpet. Listen, some of you, you don't realize I was here when we put down that carpet. I was a little kid when we put down that carpet and it was ugly then. I don't know who chose it. And if they're here still, I apologize. It was always so, and then we've spilled, like Dan said, we spilled coffee on it like a hundred million times since then. So uh, this is really neat. Uh, Listen, when we do stuff like this, you know, we're renovating. We've got new drywall. Next week, hopefully the carpet's in. Um, Things look good. But but these are signs. uh, I think that God is just doing something. Um, They're important things because our church building is a tool that we use. It's a place where we come and we worship together. It's a place where we want to be able to invite friends and family um, and to show them that we care about them, that we've cleaned up for them, that we've got ready for them so that we can share with them how much we love them because of how much God loves them. Uh, and so those are all really important things. So uh, when you're just thinking about that provision project, um, and we're talking about seeing a need, meeting a need, that, that God, that's who God is. And we, we had a whole week talking about the God who sees. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today, actually. Um, we would just love for you uh, to think about how you can partner with us. And we do have some ambitious goals financially. Um, and so uh, if, if you could, to be praying uh, just about how you can invest in what's happening here at Westside, what we believe God is doing, whether it's carpet, drywall, whether it's this project we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks in Guatemala, where we can uh, just help out building a care center for children with disabilities who are, are very much in need, uh, whether it's some of the ongoing things that are happening here, our kids' ministry that is growing, um, some of the things in, in January that we want to do, um, like Alpha Marriage, and, and just really making sure we're providing people resources uh, that's going to help change their lives, because we believe that that that's what God is doing in here. Uh, so thank you uh, for considering that. Uh, at any time, if you want to donate, just to give you a couple of uh, specifics on that, uh, you can donate out in our lobby any Sunday at our giving station, which is in the corner kind of up this way, uh, by cash or debit or credit. And if you want to make sure that it gets to the provision project, just make sure there's a line there in the, in the slip that you fill out for designation. Just put provision project. And if you're online and you'd like to give, uh, which you can do anytime through our website, hitting the give button. When it asks you the giving type, there's a little drop down. And again, you can hit uh, provision project there if you want to make sure that it goes uh, to that that project. So thank you for that. Um, Let me ask you this this morning. Do you ever feel like God is not listening to you? Do you ever feel like you have prayers that go unanswered? that you don't know how to get God's attention, that maybe he's, uh, he's not listening, maybe he doesn't care about certain things, maybe he's not interested in, in uh, certain aspects of not just your life, but maybe even in the world, because there's things that we go through that obviously we hope that we can get God's attention and that he's there for us, but also we might just, you know, we might be watching the news or scrolling through your feeds and seeing some of the things happening in the world and your heart aches for what people are going through and wonder, uh, where is God? Does God still show up? Does God care about this part of our world, this part of my life, this part of my family? And I wonder, this morning, uh, Ryan, when he was uh, leading worship, he, he read this passage from Acts chapter 17, and it's a bit of this short sermon that we get that the Apostle Paul spoke when he was in Athens. And in Acts 17, it says that uh, he goes into Athens and he looks around, and there are all these idols, there are all these statues of different gods. And in his context, when he would have walked into Athens, we know this historically, uh, there would have been a whole bunch of statues to different gods and goddesses, to the pantheon that they believed in. They had gods and goddesses for just about anything, for your, your money, for your success, for fertility, for family, just, you know, a, a god and goddess for, for anything. And uh, there was different ways that you would go and worship these, these deities. 
And the hope was that if you could kind of do it right, if you worship the God or the goddess of a certain aspect of your life or the world, then, then they would act in your favor, that they would do something for you. So obviously, if you wanted to be successful and you wanted to make money or you wanted your crops to grow and, and you wanted to have a lot, you could go to a certain God and make sure that you sacrifice something. And if I sacrifice, then hopefully this God will have some kind of mercy or love or faithfulness to me and they will act on my behalf and I'll get what I need. If we want to have children and we haven't been able to have children, and that there's a goddess for that and we can go to them and sacrifice. And if, man, maybe this goddess will hear us and we'll get what we want. We'll get that part of our lives satisfied that's way deep down inside of us. That need will be filled. We just long for someone who can do something about our situation to hear, to see, and to do something, to act in our lives. And I think that's a pretty common thing. It actually kind of makes sense. See, most of us, we would say, well, we don't have idols around. We don't have little statues. Oh, we don't believe in this God or that God. Or, you know, if we, if we set up something in our house, then maybe we can appease that God and they'll do something for us. But don't we all kind of have the same idea? We want to get in control of something that we feel out of control of. There's something missing in our life or something that we really want to change, but we don't know how to do it. And so that we hope that maybe there's a God or a goddess, or maybe there's something that we can control in our life, something that we could sacrifice to, something that if we just made this part of our life go right, we would get what it is that we need. While many of us would say, well, we don't believe in idols and gods and goddesses, I think, to me anyways... I think it's just self-evident that we still kind of treat the world that way. We have these idols in our lives that we hope will give us what we need. No statues for most of us. No, no, no oh, we're going to build this and we're going to think of it as God. But, uh, you know, the ones that come up over and over and over, money, sex, power. If we could just get these things in our lives, if we could get control in these certain ways, then, then maybe everything in our life can sort out. And there's probably a million different offshoots of those kind of things. Why money? Money's not just for money, but maybe it's because I need to feel secure. I need to feel like I'm always going to have enough. I need to make sure that, that I don't feel like I'm going to run out of anything so that I can be at peace. For, for sex, it might be about romance. It might be about feeling valuable or feeling loved. Sex might just become a currency of something deeper in us that, that we want, that we want to know that somebody cares for us, that we're not alone. Power, that if we could have control, if we could have influence, that if we could climb the ladder, that if we had certain titles, then maybe some of our problems, some of our insecurities would be able to go away. And I think when Paul came into the city and he sees all these idols, he sees all these needs of the human heart that people are trying to placate and saying, if I could just sacrifice, if I could just, if I could figure out the formula to make these gods of money and sex and power, of, of beauty, of, of titles, of success, of achievement, if we, could just achieve, if we could just appease these gods, then we could have what we want and what we need in our lives. And this is where, for us, I think it hits home. And we all say, you know, there is a temptation for all of us to create idols in our lives. What would an idol look like if it's not a statue in our lives? We make an idol when we turn a good thing into a God thing. When something becomes, becomes the most important thing to us. When, Because, by the way, none of us are tempted by bad things. Not really. Right? The greatest temptations are not to do bad things or to exalt bad things. The greatest temptations in our lives is to take good things, really good things, 
and to make them ultimate things, to make them God things. And so money, you say, is money a bad thing? No, money's not a bad thing, but when money becomes a God thing, when it becomes the most important thing, when it becomes the thing that I depend on, the thing that I need, the thing that I sacrifice for, the thing that, that I just have to have, then all of a sudden it becomes an idol. It, it, it's put in a place that it, it simply cannot perform in the way that we expect it to. And we can talk about all the different good things in our lives that we might be tempted to make ultimate things and there to create idols that we sacrifice to, that we're devoted to, that our lives become about, but that have no real power to change our lives. Three questions to help you identify your idols. So you might be sitting there thinking, okay, I don't, well, I don't know, what does that mean for me? Here, here's just three different questions if you ask yourself, and I would say even as I'm talking now, if you're thinking about this, probably for most of us within just a couple of minutes, uh, the things that you're most tempted to make an idol or that maybe you've already made an idol in your life uh, will probably come to mind pretty quickly. I don't think it's that hard for us to figure out, but here's some questions that might help you just, just to, to turn the lights on and to say, oh yeah, this, this thing is becoming too important in my life. I'm depending too much on it. And uh, I borrow these from Tim Keller, who wrote a great book called Counterfeit Gods About Idolatry. And here's some questions. Number one, what do you daydream about? Not just every once in a while a thought pops into your mind, oh, it'd be nice to have this, it'd be nice to do this. Oh, what if this happened in my life? But what do you regularly daydream about? What do you think about and kind of imagine, like, oh, if this happened in my life, if I had this, if I was with this person, if, if this thing happened, and it kind of takes over and you think, yeah, that's how my life would be great. That's all that I need, the thing that you come back to in those quiet moments when there's nothing else going on. What are your daydreams? Or what is your greatest nightmare? What is the thing you worry the most about? What is the thing that in your mind would be, if this happened, that would destroy my life? I couldn't continue without X, Y, Z. What do you daydream about or what is your greatest nightmare? Number two, where does your money effortlessly flow to? So Jesus said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That when you send uh, money and stuff out into the world, wherever it is, your heart starts to follow. You're going to find that your heart is where you've sent out your treasure. So if you just kind of put things on autopilot or go along your regular habits, where does your money really effortlessly flow to? So some of us would say, I have such a hard time saving money. Others of us go, man, I have a hard time spending money, but all of my, I make sure my, RESP, my RSPs, my RSPs for my kids, everything is maxed out. It's just so easy for me to save. And you might go, man, it sounds like security is, is my idol, is my God. Others of us, again, you might have a horrible time saving even a dime, but you know what you spend money on so easily. Maybe it's certain experiences, it's adventure, it's excitement, it's anything that really gets your adrenaline flowing, and I got to know that I'm alive, and it's so easy for me to spend money on that because that's the most important thing in my life. Maybe it's certain status symbols, it's a certain car, or maybe it's a house that you just had to have in a neighborhood that you needed to live in. But where does your money just effortlessly flow that if it was just, it's just easy for my money to go to savings, to go to status symbols, to go to pleasure, to go to excitement, to go to experiences? Where does your money effortlessly flow? If you follow your money, you will find where your heart really is. And number three, what causes your most uncontrollable emotions? Isn't that an interesting one? What causes you the most anxiety that you just can't get rid of? 
What gets you really, really angry? When this happens or, or, or when this part of my ego is damaged, this just, I lash out and I can't control it. What are the things that you just can't control? And then follow that path and say, why is it? What is so important that when it's threatened or when it's taken away that you just fly off the handle or you can't control those emotions? So do you know what it is already? Do you know what your idol or your temptation for an idol is? I bet most of us can come up with one, maybe, maybe more than that, uh, that already rise to the surface where you say, if I'm not careful, this is what becomes the most important. This is what I depend on. This is what I'm hanging my happiness or satisfaction or purpose in life on. Now let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'm going to read starting in verse 2 to verse 8 if you want to follow along. And just read about, uh, today I want to talk about some of the passages that talk about idolatry. And then uh, I also want to talk about um, the contrast between the idols in the ancient world and in our lives and of the living God. So this is from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, it's, it's talking about when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. So they're at the mountain, um, and God is going to meet with Moses. Moses goes up the mountain. He speaks with God. Everybody else is kind of down on the bottom of the mountain, afraid to get too close. And Moses comes down and is going to share with them uh, the, the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, part of their covenant with God. So it says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make the covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time, this is Moses, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. This is Moses talking to the people. And then he says, he said, I am the Lord your God. Remember we talked, we've talked in this series about the name of God. So this is Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is reference to the Exodus. And now we get into the beginning of what is the Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So uh, they come out of Egypt. Notice a couple of things. Um, if you haven't noticed through this series how important covenant is, the promises of God and linked to the stories of the uh, ancestors, of the history of the people of Israel. So going back over and over, we even get the preamble here, Yahweh talking to the people, I am your God, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of slavery, brought you to this place. It's important because this is what I promised to do for you and this is how I came through for you. So now when you're at a different point in the story, I want to remind you, I'm not just some random God, I'm the one that when you were in trouble in Egypt, when you were a slave, I miraculously brought you out. We've all these different places. We've talked over and over uh, over the last few weeks about the Exodus and how important of a story that is for the Israelites. That God brought them to the Red Sea, and when there was no way forward, He split the sea and they walked across it. Now they're in the desert. They're they're at the bottom of the mountain, and and Yahweh comes to them again and says, "I am that God. I am Yahweh, your God. You've seen me work in your history. Remember the story." 
And so now they're in this interaction and saying, Moses is saying, God, this God, Yahweh, has now spoken to you and I'm telling you. And the very first thing that that God says in in this story is, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Here is the most important thing. You should have no other gods before me. There are some scholars uh, who have read through the Bible and said the entire, the biggest issue, some would even go as far as to say the entire purpose of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is to deal with the issue of idolatry. That's a powerful thing, that all the way through, the, the prime interest uh, of the writers of Scripture, whether it's the, the Pentateuch, whether it's the prophets, whether it's the poetry, is to remind people that Yahweh is God and there ought to be no other gods before him, that he is the one that you worship, he is the one true God, that this is not a small issue of idolatry of where we really put our ultimate faith and trust and dependence on the God or the goddess that we obey, that we pattern our life after. There, there's nothing That's a bigger issue than idolatry. So later in this uh, same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5, as the interaction goes, this is what it says. And you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. So talking about the fact that they actually, God spoke to Moses and therefore spoke to the people of Israel all collectively together, that we actually heard from Yahweh. He revealed to us, he showed us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with a man and the man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? So now they've actually, they've heard God speak to them. They're afraid. The glory of God, the greatness of God, and they're now interacting. They're like, this is too much for us. We should die, but we don't want to die. For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear, they're telling Moses, all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. See, if you're used to a bunch of idols where you might speak to them, pray to them, sacrifice to them, but you never hear back and all of a sudden you're at the mountain and Moses goes up and God actually speaks, God actually reveals himself, God actually shows that he is active, that he is interactive in the world, you can see how they would go, this is a whole different thing. And they say, this is the living God. It's the voice of the living God, the one who is alive. Now in scripture, as we take it from here and move forward and talk about the living God, uh, the living God is a title given to God that is around 30 times in all of scripture, about half in the Old and half in the New Testament. But the living God in, in scripture is a contrast between Yahweh and the other idols or the other gods. So when we come specifically to this title, the living God, usually what's brought out is that our God, Yahweh, is alive, and these other idols, these other gods or goddesses that we might uh, think are powerful are not alive. That's the simple contrast that happens. Judaism and Christianity coming out of Judaism are thought of uh, two of the big three monotheistic religions in the world which means belief in one God. Maybe you've heard that over and over. If you've been in church long enough, uh, we believe that there is one God. And certainly that is where both Judaism and Christianity uh, arrive at, believe that there is only one true God. But if you read throughout the scripture, one thing that you'll notice if you're just faithful to the text is that the people did not always believe just in one God. 
that certainly the people believed that there were many gods. And actually, uh, you know, this evolves throughout Scripture, but actually the approach that is taken uh, by many writers of Scripture, by some of the prophets, is not just to harp on the fact that none of these other gods exist. There's only one God that exists. But actually, that there is one God only that we should worship. And again, what we might believe... I believe that there is only one God, one being that is God, to say that there are very real idols, that there are very real gods that live in our hearts, in our world, that we, we have exalted to God. So you understand what I'm saying? We've taken created things and put them in the place of God that we think they can act as a God. This is the difference between monotheism, which is belief in one God, and monolatry, which is worship of one God. And what we see actually throughout Scripture, more often than not in the Old Testament at least, although also in the New Testament, um, is this focus on uh, monotheism, totally is there, but monol- monolatry, that there is only one God that you should worship. There is one God that you must put above all the other gods. There is only one true God. There is only one true living God. So here's how different um, writers of Scripture, prophets, uh, handle that. Jeremiah 10, um, prophet later, hundreds of years ago, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. That's like a a vapor, like a a puff that's gone, something that is empty, something that doesn't make any difference. It's just so quick. It's here and it's gone. This is, you know, these customs, these things that we do, they don't mean anything. And then he describes the idols. A tree from the forest is cut down. And worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. That's Yahweh. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due for among the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. You see the the contrast, right? These idols, they're just, it's a piece of wood. And how do we get that idol? Somebody went and cut the tree down and, you know, they made it look a certain way. They're crafting the wood, you know, might look great, but it's just a piece of wood. It can't walk. It can't talk. It can't make good in your life, and it can't make evil in your life. It's just a thing. And then you contrast it with Yahweh, but Yahweh is great. And then he says this, by the way, the prophets, the prophets are not the people you go to when kind of you feel down and you need an encouraging hug. The prophets come in when things are going really badly and they're like sledgehammer. We got to tear things up. We got to start over. Nothing's going good. So he says in verse eight, uh, speaking of people who are worshiping these idols, they're both stupid and foolish, right? No kids club. This is just dumb. The instruction of idols is but wood. It's just wood, beaten silver, brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of craftsmen and of the other hands of goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king. Just, just calling it out. Again, he's not, not going to be the, the soft, oh, gentle, just encouraging you. He's saying, you guys are so foolish. This is so stupid. You understand, you just cut the tree down and you made that that wood look like something. 
the psalmist says something very similar. And this language of, you know, things that can't see or hear or walk or talk is used all over in the Old Testament. The psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, they have hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, this is startling, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust them. Then he says, O Israel, trust in Yahweh, he is their help and their shield. What, what do you think he means? Those... those those who make them become like them. And you've got this description where he's saying, well, they've got ears, but they can't hear, eyes, but they can't see, nose, but they can't see. So what are we supposed to take from that? What is it that if we create idols in that same way that we would become like, maybe superficial? Looks really good. Oh, he's got ears. Can you hear? Nah. Oh, he's got eyes. Can you see? Nah. Empty? There's no substance. There's nothing deeper there. There's no power. There's no effectiveness. There's nothing to these idols. As good as they could look. And as much as you might think, because I can see this, because it's tangible, because it's there, maybe I can trust it. Maybe there's a formula if I sacrifice right, if I'm obedient enough. If I get the formula just right, maybe there is something in there that can work on my behalf, that can change my life, that can give me what I need. And the prophet just goes, that's stupid and foolish. And if you're going to make all these idols, you're just going to become like them, ineffective, empty, having no real substance, having nothing changed. So why is it that we continue to create idols? I don't know. Maybe it's because we like shiny things. <laughs> I need to see something. I need something in front of me. I need to know that, uh, that, that I, that, you know, this isn't just some ethereal thing that, that God's out there somewhere, but who really knows? I need to see. I need to touch. I need to hear. I want to be valuable. I want to be respected. So I need the right car. I need to have the right clothes. I need to look a certain way. I want to be secure. So I need to be able to look at my retirement portfolio and know how much money is in there so that I can know I can confidently depend on that money. I want to be loved. So I need to have a relationship all the time. Or I need to make my spouse this God that can fulfill every shortcoming that I have, every, every need that I have. Because at least I can see these things. At least they're in front of me. And the prophet says, well, that's, that's stupid. <laughs> that's foolish. We know that that's not how life works. We know, we know that's not where life comes from. So can we talk about the living God, this title, the living God? How is the living God different? Living God means uh, two things. One, that God is alive, but also that he is the God who gives life. That God is alive. We sang about that this morning. Living and breathing, we sang. That there's something to him. We talked about the name Yahweh. That, that means essentially he is. That he is existence. That there is some substance. There is this depth. There is existence. And also that he imparts life. That he is the one who gives life. And so we think again, back to our earlier weeks, uh, when in the early chapters of Genesis, we have the, the picture of God creating Adam. And to really animate Adam, to give him his life, he breathes his breath or his spirit into Adam. This is life from the life giver. 
coming alive, not just physically, but physically inhabited by the spiritual. It's this holistic picture of life. This is the living God. So if you go through all the instances of the, the living God, that title, if you just do a search, Bible Gateway or wherever, um, you'll, you'll find a couple of emphases. One is that uh, the living God is creator. He is creator and not created. There are many things in this world that we create. And that's what is said about all these idols. You know, you get gold and silver, you make them look, you know, you mold it to look a certain way. You cut down a tree and you cut it to make it look a certain way. And it might look great on the outside, it might look powerful, it might look effective, but the living God is not created. He is the creator, which gives him authority. He is the one that gives life to everything. He is the reason why there is anything and why we are here. If you're going to go to something or someone that could actually change your life, don't go to that which is created. Go to the creator. Secondly, and maybe uh, this is the most important thing, he is active and he intervenes in the world for his people. The living God, when people reference the living God, it's because they're saying we've seen and experienced the living God in our world. He's actually acted on our behalf. So really quickly, uh, just a, a few of those instances. David, remember David and Goliath. Goliath is the enemy. He's huge. He's imposing. He's strong. He represents the Philistine armies that want to wipe out Israel. And when David is confronting Goliath, the giant that everyone is scared of, he says his confidence comes from proclaiming that he, Goliath, is challenging the living God. You're not challenging me, little David, what can I do? You're challenging the living God. And guess what the living God does? He protects his people. He steps in for his people. He intervenes in history. Hezekiah, who is a king in the, the history of Israel uh, and was coming under attack by the superpower of his day, by a nation that was going to come and wipe them out, and he tells his enemies not to mock the living God because that's who he trusts for protection. He doesn't say, don't, don't come against me, we're really strong. He says, you don't mock the living God because the living God acts, the living God intervenes and he will protect us. The psalmist in the poem says that every good blessing comes from the living God. That where do we get every good thing that we have? It's from the living God, from the creator Daniel, uh, some of you remember the story. Daniel, uh, was with some, he was thrown into a lion's den um, because he wouldn't follow the king's order to worship the king in Babylon instead of God. And so the king throws him into the, the, the lion's den, assuming that the lions are going to obviously destroy him, eat him. And the king wakes up the next day and miraculously, Daniel is still there and he's fine. And Darius the king proclaims that Daniel's God is the living God is the one who has authority over the lions, which, by the way, the lions are symbols of Babylon, which was the superpower who was oppressing Daniel and his people, that the living God reigns over the lions, reigns over the nations, reigns over oppression. Peter in the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus asked Peter, uh, who do you say I am? People say a lot of things about me. Peter, who do you say I am? And this powerful proclamation, Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Son of the living God. And it is upon this proclamation that Jesus, a couple of verses later, would say, you are right, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says, based on this, uh, I will build my church and not even the gates of Hades will prevail. That is, Hades is the place of the dead. Not even death will be able to stand up against God. Why? Because he is the living God. I'm the Son of the living God. And it is a foretaste, not just of Jesus' crucifixion, 
but that he would go down into Hades and that he would overcome death, that he would be resurrected, that the living God is the God of resurrection, that even when you think death is the most powerful thing, and death would have been also uh, thought of as a god, there's gods of death, but not even the gods of death can prevail over the living God, the God who is alive and the God who gives life, the God who raised Jesus up and the God who promises that those who come after him will also be raised up, that not even death is a God strong enough to prevail. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, if we go back, the next chapter that we were, re- we were reading from earlier, uh, they're kind of working this stuff out. So how are we going to follow these Ten Commandments and and all the other commandments that come? How are we going to walk with our God? And we come to a famous passage that's called the Shema, which means to hear. And you'll see that because it comes from the first word in this passage. But this is part of how they said, here's how we're going to go forward. Here's how we're going to pass this down. Here's how we're going to teach this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, we're going to take this statement, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, Another way to translate this, um, the, word, the, the, the verb to be in Hebrew is oftentimes implied, which means um, it's not written there, so you have to infer when you're supposed to have it there. So if you wanted to translate this a different way, don't let this freak you out, because sometimes in translation, we look at phrases, sentences a couple of different ways, and those perspectives help us really bring out the meaning. meaning. Another way you could translate this is, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Who is our God? Yahweh is our God. There's so many gods out there, but Yahweh is our God and Yahweh alone. No other God, no other goddess. We don't need a God and goddess for anything. We follow the living God. And then the command is, and then when you sit and when you stand and when you go out, when you come home, when you're here, when you're there, when you're everywhere, sounds like Dr. Seuss, but over and over and over, Put it on your, 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 your wrist. And so they would have these little containers and they would contain scriptures and they would hang it from their wrist so that wherever they would go would be there. They would put in their ceremonies uh, the frontlets between their eyes. They would put these little compartments with scripture right here on their head in a little uh, head thing. And it would hang there. And they would just be reminded of these powerful scriptures. Teach it to your children and their children's children. Never get away from this. This becomes part of the liturgy of Israel. The Shema, the prayer that we say three times a day in our our ceremonies over and over. That Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. We need to be ramming that into our hearts and our minds over and over and over because it's far too easy for us to believe that there are other gods that we must appease. So here's a question for you. And in your life groups, I'd love for you to talk about this week and just dream about this. What are the rhythms that remind you to worship? What are the rhythms in your life? What are the habits? What are the disciplines? What are your frontlets? What are the doorposts that, that you write these things on? What are the ways that you teach children, your children uh, about who God is? How are you reminded? Because listen, if we're going to replace the idols in our hearts... If we're going to tear them out and say, money's gotten a hold of me and success has got a hold of me and romance has got a hold of me and my grades and how people look at me have got a hold of me. How are we going to uproot those? We need to replace it with the one true God. And one of the ways that we do that, I think the primary way we do that is through worship. We don't just sing songs. 
We sing about the living God to remind us that, that the living God acts on our behalf and intervenes. That even when it doesn't seem like it, let's back up and look at this story all the way through Scripture. Not just my story, but the, the story of Moses, the story of Abraham before that, the, the story of the prophets, the story of the Israelites, and ultimately the story of Jesus to be reminded that the living God acts and the living God intervenes. We worship him. And he doesn't need us to give him all of what we have. He doesn't, it doesn't need to be served by us. We read that. He loves us and he calls us to come to him and to worship. So how do you do that? I hope part of it's coming on Sundays and we do sing together. We read scripture together and we pray together. I would hope it's, it's being with a group of people in a life group or at Alpha and reminding of each other what it, what it means and what's written in scripture and sharing your story to encourage others to pray for each other might be how you interact with your kids and what you tell them and what you make sure they know is most important and what they can truly rely on. But what are your habits? What are your disciplines over and over? I believe that the place that we see the living God most clearly is in the person of Jesus. In Hebrews, it says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, and he goes on to, to share what it looks like, that Jesus shows us uh, what the invisible God, where is God and how do I know he cares about us? We look to Jesus who makes the invisible visible, not a statue, not an idol, but flesh and blood inhabited by the spirit of the living God, the one who died and yet death could not overcome. And I just looked through scripture, some of the gospels this week, and I noted some of the times that Jesus saw or heard or walked Jesus saw Peter and Andrew casting their nets and he saw their potential and called them to follow him. Jesus saw the crowds, crowds of people who were hungry. He saw what they needed and he taught them. He saw a man lying on a mat and he saw his faith and forgave him. He saw a large crowd and he had compassion and healed their sick. He heard a blind beggar who called out for mercy and Jesus healed him and gave him sight. He heard that his centurion's son was dying and when he hears of his faith, he makes him well. One day, the disciples were out in a boat, and there was a storm, and they thought that they were going to drown, and they saw Jesus walking. And Peter, the same Peter who declared that he was Christ, son of the living God, he says, Peter, come, walk to me, and I'll walk with you through the storms of life. And even if it was just for a brief little moment, Peter had faith and believed and walked with Jesus through the storm on the water. As we close today, I, I want to pray. And uh, here's my encouragement to you, just to come back to where we started. Perhaps uh, today you think there's spots where God has uh, not answered your prayers, where God is not involved, where you wish there was some kind of formula um, for God to show up in your life. I'll say this, we can't control God, not the living God. He's not wood or stone. He's not gold or silver, something that we can try and manipulate. I can't tell you what God will do or what God can't do, but I'll tell you this, that God, Yahweh, is the living God. And as we see in Jesus, he sees you and he hears you and he wants to walk with us. He wants us to walk with him. And so uh, would you join me as we pray? And I simply want to pray that as perhaps um, some of the idols come to our mind, and maybe some of the areas that were really needy come to mind today, I want you to be reminded to come to worship to the living God who sees and hears and walks with us. 
So Heavenly Father, um, I believe that today there's probably some, some very real needs, uh, some very difficult circumstances, some things that we feel out of control of in this room, people watching online. God, today we wanna worship you and proclaim that you are the living God, that you are active and that you are effective. You're not like the idols that can't do anything in our lives, but in fact, you love us. You care for us. You see us and hear us. You stepped into this world to walk with us, that we might walk with you. So God, today, would you help us to, to take our idols, help us to uproot them, identify them, proclaim that they can't do good or evil in our, our lives, not really. And God, that you would fill those spaces. I pray that you would bring comfort to those who are grieving. I pray that you would speak wisdom to those who are confused. I pray that you would give strength to those who feel weak. I pray for the circumstances that seem so big for some to get over that you would show yourself to be even greater, the one true God, the living God, who is not just powerful, but who sees us and hears us and walks with us. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name.